Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ah! Hello, everyone, and welcome to another show of Around the Coin. We have the three of us back again. I am Mike Townsend, one of the co-hosts. Fessel Khan and Brian Romley are here today, and we're going to be talking about credit cards, the history of them, and the -the behind-the-scenes look at the companies that built our global financial networks today. It's an exciting industry that dates back, you know, really to the history of money, but we're going to start around the 1850s when... Uh, Amex first was established. And uh, Brian, do you want to give any introduction here as to uh, as to your your side of uh, you know having run a credit card company, a merchant account processing company? Um, you know the the early history dating back to 1850 when Amex first was established themselves as a money mover, effectively as a competitive uh, competitor to the post office or the postal service, where they were moving money for financial institutions as one of their largest customers. But when they first formed, they had no aspirations or anticipations of becoming a financial institution themselves. It really was was until the uh, 1882 when American Express introduced money orders. Because effectively, they were American Express was catering to the financial industry, the banks who were struggling or had an opportunity to to move money between uh, different financial institutions. A few different interesting dates were 1865 is when charge coins were first issued, and these were coins that department stores used uh, early forms of plastic, copper, aluminum that had the customer's ID on them and acted as credits for the customer. Uh, 1891, American Express started offering, offering traveler's checks. And after 10 years, these traveler's checks that were effectively carrying the value of what money would be between different banks were, after 10 years, they were about $6 million in circulation. And then 1899 was the first case of identity theft by, with a credit card. It actually was a live spot, livestock commission man who threw a credit card in the trash and someone picked it up and started using the card on behalf of him. So there's an article we'll link to in the show notes that's interesting about that. Uh, 18, 18, sorry, 1914 department stores started issuing credit and the concept of department store credit and uh, using these department store coins and, and credit cards or effectively pieces of plastic or metal that had the customer ID uh, stitched on them started to become widespread. Uh, And then things started to really pick up. By 1935 to 1950, these charge plates are what department stores used and and, uh, the early financial institutions used as early credit cards, which had an embossed aluminum or white metal uh, uh, name on there and your ID number. And they were typically used in these large department stores. And then uh, as we get into the 1950s, a lot of things start happening. The Diners Club start was debuted. Uh, Franklin's National Bank started issuing the first charge card. Uh, the first U.S. patent that contained the word credit card was filed in 1955. And then it will start getting into the merchant account process, which is effectively defined, as I see it, as how do you go from uh, using electricity, how do you have a, an electric credit card 
machine that processes the customer's account balance through the store and then moves money behind the scenes. Today, we use that all the time. But there was a time not that long ago when there were groups of people, and Brian, this is you know your your bread and butter. There were groups of people that went into restaurants and and diners and you know all sorts of department stores and would sell the owners on the concept of having this terminal that would swipe a credit card and then move money from a bank from the customer's bank into the the institution, the bank of the merchant. And that was a really interesting time period. Uh, from what I understand, it was really a, a gold rush for merchant processors to get in and you know, effectively sell merchants on this new technology because really the promising aspect was the residual income from the percentage transaction cost that the merchant salesperson would gain. So you could sell a restaurant one time and have residual income for you know, 30 years or so, however long the, the restaurant kept your merchant account. Uh, with all that said, Brian, do you want to give us a little background in your experience there? Yeah. You know, first, I, I really, great overview, Mike. Um, you know, first, I'd like to try to separate the idea of uh, credit versus uh, charge versus debit. And these are almost interchangeable today, but they were conceptually different. The idea of, um, the idea of credit really was not fully established until the 1950s. Prior to that, we were more in a charge type of environment. So let me give you the distinction that really took place just about um, with um, with John Wanamaker. I, I really think John Wanamaker is the sort of antecedent to the modern charge and credit card. Wanamaker was an incredibly brilliant uh, retailer. He was the Jeff Bezos of the late 1800s. And a lot of folks don't want to attribute what this uh, uh, company and this individual did. Uh, I don't know why it's always missed in history books. You can go on Quora and see my odes to John Wanamaker. I grew up in that area and I got to see the history uh, directly by meeting people who knew him and uh, going to what were museums at the time and are no longer there. What, what Wanamaker did was first he established what is called fixed pricing. For for credit uh, and charge to work, you got to have fixed pricing to begin with. Prior to that, you had haggle pricing or negotiated pricing. And a lot of folks just don't understand what this is like in the United States, but other parts of the world, uh, fixed pricing uh, is more of a modern concept. You could still haggle. You go to... You know, South America, a lot of my friends go to South America and say, no price is fixed. And I go, that's exactly right. So what Wanamaker did is he goes, I'm going to fix my prices. It's going to be a no-haggle price. With that will come along uh, more or less a guaranteed low price. And also we're going to put together this idea of value. So when you buy something here, if you don't like it, there's a no questions asked money back guarantee. Um if you don't, um, if you don't feel it, 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 uh, it, it was useful to the level you thought, you know, the entire thing, uh, was, was, uh, refundable. And one of the ways to guarantee that was he said, take it away now and you don't have to pay for it until the end of the month. Now, this is interesting. Nobody really did this to that level on a grand scale. This idea that you can use your reputation uh, as John Wanamaker knew it, uh, they, would, they were the very first to start understanding what uh, the reputation represented, what the customer value was to the company. But he also was a marketer. Uh, he knew something that we today call the puppy dog close. The puppy dog close means that there is a high propensity and likelihood that if somebody takes something home that they're amiable with, they will fall in love with it and not want to bring it back. And Wanamaker knew that. And um, so Wanamaker really started the first charge card. In a sense, it became a revolving charge card, which was a credit card by all accounts. Now, why is that important? There were a lot of religious and philosophical aspects that were going against the idea of extending credit. This, I'll leave the listener to go down the whole path of this and different 
uh, religions. There's usury and and uh, uh, money changers and all this other type of thing. So people would avoid the concept of credit like the plague, but they were okay with revolving charge. And that means that if you pay a little bit now, it'll revolve into next month, you pay a little bit. The whole concept that was different was interest. So now we establish revolving charging credit. There was also layaway. Layaway kind of existed for a very long time, but we won't really go down that path. That's sort of a uh, this idea that you really don't have the money and you're trying to secure the product at today's price and take delivery uh, someday tomorrow. Uh, and uh, you're freezing that price. In some layaway programs, it's really a charge program because they're giving you the product, but they're holding title. And that's the other very important point. When John Wanamaker sold you something on a charge card, he held title in that product, meaning that they can repossess that product. Um, so then we go to Frank Xavier McNamara in the early 1950s uh, at... Um, uh, Captain uh, Captain's Cabin in New York City. What McNamara basically uh, discovered, uh, uh, sorry, it's a major captain, uh, major major cabin grill on 33rd West, 33rd Street in New York City. It's uh, ground zero of the uh, of the credit card revolution, if you will. Uh, I studied it intently, so I'll go back to this. Uh, I got to meet uh, Mr. McNamara too. He's an incredible guy. The idea was he forgot his his cash, and he was taking clients out. He was uh, in the in the banking world. And he was taking clients out, and he realized that he was embarrassed that he didn't have the cash to pay the check. So he sent his secretary back because that's what people were inclined to do in the nineteen fifties, and uh, she came back with cash. And he talked to the owner of the restaurant. He said, "You know, couldn't you, in some future date?" vouch for me so I don't have to give you cash? He goes, yeah, you're good. You don't have to give me cash. And so it started him on an odyssey, which became Diners Club, which essentially became the the prototypical universal credit card. Now, the problem with the prototypical universal credit card was technology didn't quite catch up to it. It wasn't until really the 1970s when IBM and... Um, and uh, a gentleman by the name of Perry ironed his wife, uh, ironed a magnetic IBM magnetic strip, uh, a, a piece of magnetic tape from an IBM reel to reel data recorder onto the back of a credit card. Uh, this started in the mid 60s, early 60s, really. Um, primarily because he needed a way to do door access or controlled access for the central intelligence agency that which IBM was a contractor and he came up with the idea of putting a magnetic strip on the back of a card his wife uh Dorothea decided you know he came home one day and of course him being an IBMer had white shirts that she was starching and he was holding the magnetic strip and and the card and saying honey I can't glue this thing uh, I need to get it to work. And she goes, do you mind? And he goes, sure. What do you got? She lays it down, puts a little sheet over it, and irons the magnetic strip to the back of the credit card. And the credit card, as we know it still today, was invented. And that is a card that holds more data than is physically appearing on the front of the card. The chip card became sort of a side story to this. Even today, the chip card in the United States doesn't represent anything other than the ability not to simulate that card physically. It doesn't do anything for stopping online fraud. Uh, but it, it, it hid data, it, uh, some aspects of data, what we call three-track data today. And uh, I guess Mr. Perry tried to convince Mr. Watson at IBM that this can become a universal credit card. Uh, he had seen obviously what McNamara did with Diners Club and he tried to covet them as a client. And it wasn't until, uh, the Bank AmeriCard system that he was able to convince a client. And we're talking early 1970s. So prior to that, the credit card started to evolve over the 60s and 70s, but it didn't become really prominent to the general population to about 1975. 
1975 is a watershed period, and that's when some of the larger banks started to opening, open up their pre-approval uh, algorithms, if you will. They were very crude algorithms by today's standards, where they're essentially putting a credit card in an envelope and sending it to folks who they thought were creditworthy, primarily their own customers uh, at the bank, uh, in this case, uh, Bank of America and and other banks, you know, Citibank later on, et cetera. This became a bit of a puppy dog close also. Somebody has sent you the ability to buy something now and pay it later. Very, very seductive. Also, very much telegraphing your pedigree in public. The thing that was discovered very early on with McNamara and Diners Club is that it transmitted and broadcast that you were a person of position when you were able to walk away from a restaurant or a bar and just use your signature to vouch that you'll pay for it at some later date. Uh, the signature at first was the, the the device. Later, the device became the card. The card became an entity in and of itself. And that's where we started to develop gold and silver and metal and all these different variations and sizes. It, it, it became a broadcast of wealth and position. No different than what the white headphone cords on an iPod or even the lack of headphone cords and white buds sticking out of your ear broadcast today. These are symbols that people like to present to the public. So American Express, uh, they realized this kind of, I think, earlier than Visa and MasterCard. And they started creating sort of an elite status uh, quite early on. They were the ones that really invented the concept of a gold card. And really advertised in magazines and then later on television, later on with Carl Malden, don't leave home without it. I mean, even if you're not that old, that phrase still might ring. Um, and it was broadcasting this idea that you were somebody, you've re reached a station in life. So that's the card. Now let's get to the merchant. The merchant is a very interesting thing. The merchant rejected on a grand scale, the idea of anybody interceding between them and the customer. So that that's where I came in at the very young age. Uh, I thought I was going to be a physicist. I thought I was going to go to Princeton. I had no desire to get involved in payments. And um, I wrote one of the very early point-of-sale systems for an auto parts store in New Jersey, which later got sold uh, to a uh, database company. And along that moment, somebody asked me to simulate inside of software the functionality of a Z80-based credit card terminal, which was then known as a Zon uh, terminal from Verifone. This is uh, mid-70s. And I said, this is easy. It's a black box to me. It's a modem with uh, it reads the card data, and it sends it out over a telephone line, and the telephone line sends back an approval code. I can do that. So I black boxed it. I could have just opened it up and figured it out by decoding the ROM, but I didn't. I black boxed it. And I realized that other credit card merchant providers at that time, Peachtree Payment Systems, uh, the infamous uh, star of the ISO community by a gentleman by the name of Jim Elliott, uh, they contacted me and they said, I'd like to give you $500 for any lead of people who are buying your software. Because I started selling it beyond auto parts stores, and and so who, why transition. would they? What interest do they have in paying you for that? So there, there. This is at the time when know, there was a bunch of I merchant didn't... processors out there trying to sell to to small businesses. So you're now talking about what 1980? Is no. that about the time frame? It, it was still in the 1970s. 70s um, and okay, yeah, and so it's a sprint now for uh, companies to go out and sales organizations to go out and sell merchandise. It accounts. wasn't a sprint. See, it, it, a lot of people revised history, especially the young payment startups who need to create a boogeyman on why the payment industry is so terrible and why we need fixed rates. You know who I'm talking about. So let me tell you what it was really like. Bankers were in control of the issuance of merchant accounts. Bankers had no unilateral motivation to dis 
to distribute merchant accounts amongst their merchants. Why? They're in a checking account and savings business. Even though they joined a nonprofit association called ultimately Visa and MasterCard, they were not highly motivated to develop the merchant side, but they were highly, highly motivated to develop the consumer credit side. So here is where the quagmire existed. And this is where entrepreneurs came in. Entrepreneurs that I think should really be assigned in history in their right place because they opened up the world to Stripe, to Square, to PayPal. Because if these folks didn't exist, they wouldn't exist. What did these folks do? The bankers essentially said, I don't like the ugly side of merchant account processing. I don't like this idea of having to convince merchants. I don't like anything other than the money I make on the consumer and the money I make on, a cons- on the merchant when the card is presented at their business. A lot of people will tap me on the shoulder saying, Brian, how does the card issuer make money at the merchant? Well, here's the big secret that most people don't realize. And Square and Stripe won't tell you this. If you're inputting a card number or swiping a card number, just about 89% goes to the card issuer. Now, let me repeat that very clearly. The card issuer is making money at the merchant side, and that's called interchange. And on the issuing side, that's called interest. And so they're making money on both sides of the transaction. So when merchants get mad at some merchant processor or even Stripe or Square and say these prices are too high, what really they're getting mad at is interchange, which is established by the bankers to make money on both sides. Now, why does a banker feel that they get to access that money that, uh, you know, let's call it one and a half percent for a swipe transaction. And let's call it one point, let's call it 2% for a keyed in transaction. Why do they feel they need to make that money? A couple of reasons. One is the loan that is granted to that merchant over 30 days that it takes them to get the money from the consumer. So when you think about it, the merchant is getting a consumer to walk in the store now and pay for something today and pretty much get their money today within reason, maybe tomorrow, whatever. Um, you know, everybody's like, oh, I can get my money instantly. Who cares? That's not even a marketing feature. But let's say, okay, the merchant gets their money now. Um, so the merchant gets the money for a sale today, but the consumer may not have that money until 30 days later. So in effect... What the merchant processor is doing is they're making a sale happen that possibly couldn't have happened unless there was credit granted in real time. And this even goes true for a debit card because most debit cards without a PIN uh, don't activate immediately. That means you pay 30 days later. When a PIN happens, it generally comes out of your checking account immediately. So that's why the rates are lower for a PIN-based debit. Uh, this is more of an American concept. In Europe, everybody's more or less pinned. Money comes out instantly. But that's we won't talk about that right at this moment. And, and so basically when a, when a merchant pays the – because the merchant does pay the fee and then, then they carry it on and pass it on to the customer. But when they pay the p- fee of, say, anywhere around 3%, that if you look at a pie graph, that's largely going to two different banks. The banks of the merchant the account, the, 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 car, the card nope, issuer, which nope, is the, car, the, the card true. of the credit card, right? The, the bank a of the credit card majority, of, the, of the customer. Yeah, a vast majority is actually going to the card issuer. I got to clear that up because it, 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 it's Okay, yeah, it's, pro- it's probably worth just defining. When you say card yeah. issuer, wh- wh- it's a, gr- a group of people that do something. It is the group of people uh, here, that here's the card issue issuer. The card, the issuer card on behalf is, of the bank. Is the bank. Okay, the card issuer is the bank, not Visa or MasterCard necessarily, is the bank that issued the card to the card holder. So when I, when I go to a merchant and I present a card, the merchant's paying a fee. That fee goes to the merchant processing bank ultimately. It doesn't go to Square or Stripe. It goes to the merchant processing bank ultimately. And the merchant processing bank essentially sends that to the issuer of the credit card that the user had when they came into the business. And a vast majority of that money goes there. And so that's the fallacy. If anything I'd ever like to really clear up in people's mind is that's the fallacy. That's where all the money really goes. And that's why when merchants are trying to get a lower rate, 
and they buy into the, the various marketing stories of, uh, you know, interchange, uh, fixed rates, the Stripe model, the Square model, the first data model, the blah, blah, blah. You know, you're talking about fractions of, of of percentages, basis points that you're saving. You're not talking about a tremendous amount. Now, hidden fees, and, and the, but then again, and you'd you'd, you'd say yeah. that the the value the value that the merchant is paying for is that the merchant account, uh, which is really a bank that's taking on some financial risk on behalf of the merchant, is is providing that service. They're effectively loaning out money to the merchant to front the money to give to this customer. And then the money later comes back from the customer's bank back into the merchant account bank. Is that uh, an accurate way to and describe really it? More, so yeah. And, and really more importantly is that the merchant is held whole and fully paid if the consumer decides not to pay their bill. This is immensely important. It's a part that most people forget. If the consumer decides to go bankrupt, and the merchant sold that consumer a refrigerator. Under normal circumstances, uh, that refrigerator, let's call it a $700 item, uh, let's just say that that consumer went bankrupt two months later and only paid one payment of $25 on it. The merchant still has the sale. The bank incur, incurred a risk. But guess who incurred the risk? The card issuer, not the merchant processor. But now here's where hot potatoes starts. Hot potatoes starts with, um, you know, Mr. Merchant, I'm not sure if that's a bona fide sell. I need to see the receipt and I need to make sure that that signature matches exactly the way it, it did when we established credit to this consumer. Oh, yes, I know that we're liable. And I, yes, I know that they just entered into bankruptcy, but, you know, we're just dotting our I's and crossing our T's. And recently, the last couple of years, uh, definitely since 2008, but more so lately, some card issuers have been pushing back on merchants and saying, you know, uh, we're not sure if that's a valid bona fide transaction and we're going to question it. And sometimes they get away with it. So sometimes they push it back on to guess who? The merchant processor. See, the merchant processor stands in for the merchant and the, um, uh, the, the card issuer uh, let's call it the acquirer. Merchant processor is the acquirer, and the issuer stands. It, it just, a, the just, just a quick so interjection in there. The the, the, world, the credit card issuer is not Visa or Mastercard. That, that's that's an all, no, also it's, it's the commonly bank that's mistaken. On the credit card. Right. Okay. Okay. Continue yes. on. Visa and Mastercard are, are 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 merely a pipeline. They're not the substance that goes through the pipeline. The cash is coming from the bank. All right, so the card issuer, whether it's a Visa-branded, MasterCard-branded, or in some cases now American Express has their own bank, the issuer is saying, I don't want the hot potato. Let me throw it back on the merchant acquirer or the processing bank. The processing bank has less ability to fight what is called a chargeback. And so they play these games back and forth, and that's the the thing that most startups learned. Which I, you know, when we first started doing this podcast, you would hear me pronounce a lot of problems that these young payment companies were going to have. Well, guess what? They're living in that world. They could have known about but, it, uh, but uh, five but years ago. But Good. Yeah, yeah. Chargeback would be held responsible for the merchant, so the merchant would actually no. lose money on that. So no, it's held. It, it, it's held. It's not held to the merchant. It's held to the card processor. It's held to the acquirer bank, and then the acquirer bank. It's up to them to try to get it from the merchant. See how it works. So, so right. But they. The, that, I mean, that's not a. That's not a hard thing, right? If you're the no, bank of the merchant, thing. you just take it, right? So merchants often pay. I mean, this is like a significant cost for them is chargebacks. Yes. You know, so they okay, just so, budget that so in as loss. Well, yes and no. Let's look at it. From the point of view of the merchant acquirer, and this is why, you know, some, you, you know, modern startup companies have gotten into payments. They're just mitigating some of the risk, but they're learning the hard way. And you're seeing, you're going to start seeing some of these companies report losses, larger and larger losses, because the risk management systems that they devised look good on paper, but don't function. And you're going to see this true with the company that will go public in the next two years. So, my point I'm trying to say is the card issuing bank has, through the Visa MasterCard system, all of the power to reverse a transaction. So they go to the merchant acquirer and say, we don't believe that this transaction is valid. And if you don't jump through all these hoops, you're stuck with it. Now, 
if that transaction is big enough or if the merchant is not whole enough, the card, the card processing bank or the merchant acquiring bank has to pay it out of their own funds. So yes, you can collect it from the merchant if the merchant's available. Now, if that merchant was, was not vetted correctly and they just simply put in their email address and answered three questions about their past and got a merchant account in 12 seconds online and they instituted some you know, round of fraud, let's call it the fraud of a thousand knives that some people are feeling today, they now are taking a tremendous financial burden and putting it onto the acquirer or the third party who injected themselves between the acquirer and the merchant. The, the companies that have injected themselves between the acquirer and merchant, uh, the very first one to do that on a grand scale was PayPal. Second to that was Square. And third to that is a company called Stripe. So they are literally inserting themselves between the merchant and the merchant processing bank and saying, I'm smart enough to figure out the risk better than you guys, and I'm going to take the financial burden. That may or may not be true. The bottom line is the merchant acquiring bank now goes to the middle party. These are aggregated merchant account providers, and they say, pay up. And we're going to start seeing in some S1s millions of dollars have been lost in these little shenanigans that are going on. Merchants that were not whole to be able to pay, uh, merchants that were fraud to begin with, uh, business plans that were more or less pyramid schemes, illegal activities. Yeah, no, you're talking about more recent companies. Uh, over the right. last uh, five years. Uh, okay, uh, yeah. Uh, I'd like to rewind a little bit, if you don't mind, back until sure. the, the back in, back into the 1960s, 1970s when this all came about. I just find it really interesting to learn the origins of some of these companies now that we look at as so ubiquitous globally, like MasterCard, Visa, AMX, and even the banks more more broadly. The banks have been around. They were really the precursor to these companies. But one thing I found interesting in researching this topic was MasterCard and Visa both had similar type origins, which were yeah. MasterCard was was really uh, in its early days. It wasn't called MasterCard. It was a separate organization. Uh, actually, Visa was yeah interbank ICA. And yeah. Bank Bank Americard was Visa, where it was yeah. a group of banks. Uh, the Bank of America, based in California, introduced Bank Americard, which later became Visa in 1958. And effectively, yeah. what it did was developed an extensive network of licensee licensee banks throughout the United States. So it went it went and it got contracts and got together this all the other banks and they grouped together and they each owned a piece of this Bank Americard. And that Bank Americard just you know changed effectively the brand and then of course it evolved over time but it was still owned collectively and incentivized by these banks. And so what they would do is they would enroll card members uh, each in their respective geographical areas into this Bank AmeriCard. So you have one large network combined of a bunch of different banks enrolled into this separate organization called, we'll just call it Visa for now. And then you can collect information about people and make transactions across that network. So it was really interesting to learn about the evolution or the, the, the initial birth of Visa and MasterCard as, as coming out of the banks. So if you think about how to solve the chicken and the egg problem early on, it would be difficult for a startup to do back then, you know, maybe even impossible. But for banks, they had obviously the leverage of uh, their own customers to go and they have you know, the incentive to market to each of their customers to, you know, to Mike, grow that network. What's really interesting is this has always been driven by technology. So I can enter in my personal history in this. When I first started getting involved in the, in the merchant processing business, 99% uh, of merchants would imprint a credit card uh, with an imprinting machine, some people call it a knuckle buster, with uh, a three-part carbon uh, carbon paper, and later it was carbonless, and take those papers, put it in an envelope, and send it away and get paid three to four weeks later. That was the credit card system when I entered into it. Uh, a company called Verifone ultimately changed that. Now, there were other machines before that, Amaran and and uh, and. Um, uh, to some extent, uh, companies like Ingenico. But, you know, I, I use Verifone because they really were ground zero. Uh, Verifone was a creature of a Silicon Valley, and uh, they took a Z80 processor and a MagStrip reader, slapped it inside a box with a telephone keypad on it, 
and they created uh, a wide-scale ability to electronically verify credit cards. Now, it's very interesting. Prior to that, we would have uh, the uh, match list. The match list was more or less a booklet that came out three times a week that merchants had to look up. It was regional. So obviously, if you use a credit card outside your region, you weren't on the match list, and you could get away with fraud. What the match list was was cards that were revoked, cards that uh, were stolen, all kinds of things. And it was really small paper. It was like bingo paper or thinner than newspaper, onion skin type paper. And you would have to write down that you looked at the match list. And then sometimes you would have to call in uh, to a, a number and talk to a real operator. And the operator would say, you know, this number is is not valid for a credit card transaction. So the computer age invented more or less the credit card age. And it was built in the back of banks, but banks failed miserably for merchant adoption. When I started in the merchant business, there were about 200,000 merchants in the United States. That's it. The wow, ISO, and really, that's, that's, that's incredibly small. Yeah. It, Those it had like brick and mortar businesses that are selling. So yeah, wow. So so and and that's why when when people tell you the story about how credit card business started, the the story they don't tell you is what the independent selling organizations did for the credit card business. What they did, and some of them were not great people. I mean, some of them were just scummy people. They were sales. They were quote unquote sales guys. But some of them were incredibly brilliant. Incredibly brilliant. Uh, and yeah. that's what drew me into the business. So let me tell One you thing. what happened. Go ahead. I was just going to say a little bit of context on that specific piece. I, I was looking into it earlier, and IBM was the one who developed the technology of the magnetic strip card yeah. to contain information on the on the plastic card itself. And that was that what was I was saying. In 19- yeah, right. And so that was in 1970, they unveiled this. And they partnered yeah. with, it was, a pro, it was a private program with American Airlines and American, American Express. Airlines, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and they so, had, they were the ones to, you know, really at that time, First Data, which is now a large payment company, was a, an emergent company that was building the technology to go from the magnetic strip. So imagine just, I like bringing it back to the first principles concept. You swipe the card and there's a numbers on the card, you know, 16 numbers or so that are translated in a magnetic uh, uh, transmission to the card. Now it's an electrical signal, and that electrical signal goes to a database somewhere, and that was what First Data in the early days would would effectively manage. Yeah. And then they would send based on that database of accounts. It would come in and say, "Hey, this is five eight nine account," and it would go straight to the bank. It would have an address reference number, and it would go straight to the bank. And then the bank would have a system. It could have. I, I don't know. I believe at that time, yeah, you know, first days it might have been a manual system where it just you know printed out a piece of paper or in some way communicated for them manually. And then they you know each month or week they would just run through that that list of transactions they had. And that was the it, it, yeah that that's what they that's what they started with. It was just so yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and and it, if it wasn't for Dorothea Perry because uh, uh, Mr. Perry invented the idea of putting a magnetic strip on the card, if she didn't iron that onto a card, we probably wouldn't be talking about magnetic strip cards today to the same level because that that was originally invented. The concept was originally invented in the early 1960s. And, the, you know, uh, Perry worked on this for years. I mean, he tried to glue things. And if, if you didn't have an iron at just the right time to uh, heat this onto the card, we probably would have something different. So, yeah, American Express actually owned uh, a part of American Express owned uh, First Data. Uh, so First Data has a very interesting heritage. They, um, they created a machine called the Hypercom machine, which is, was a competitor to the, um, uh, to the Verifone device. So I got pulled into this. Because I'm a technologist. And I said, wow, this is great. We're going to electrify and we're going to quantify and computerize this new concept called credit because it was new. And I said, this is beautiful. And I was a historian, so I loved the study of money. I, I was studying money before. And I said, I'm going to get involved in this in some little way. So after I sold my company, I jumped in and I started researching it. But what I ran across is what, you know, um, uh, the PayPal Mafia ran across, what Jack Dorsey ran across, what the Collusion Brothers run across today, uh, which, you know, I could easily help them to figure where, where this is all going to end, uh, is bankers. And what I mean by that is when the very first ISOs 
approached the banks, it was out of their needs, not the needs of the ISOs. What essentially happened was a group of individuals who were at that time, uh, I, I would say more or less selling other things, let's just put it that way, they realized that having credit card payments were very valuable. And so they started analyzing, like any entrepreneur, and said, you know, getting a merchant account is too hard. And, and and this whole paper thing is ridiculous. Let's try to bring this idea together and quantify it so that it can work. So the ISOs, the independent selling organizations, the non-bank organizations, the ones that everybody try to vilify today, they approached banks. And sooner or later, some of the smaller banks gave in. They said, listen, it's not against the rules to have you sell this, but we really don't like you. Uh, we'll tolerate you, but we really could do what you're doing, but we'll let you go and do it. And you know what we did, the ISO community? We took it to 200,000 merchants to, I don't know, 20 million merchants in a space of 10 years. They didn't do that. They couldn't sell merchant accounts that their life depended on, upon it. Now, how do you sell a merchant account? Let me tell you what it was like. I, one of my first deals, still a customer of mine, this is back in the early 1980s, is at an airport. Now, this guy is no longer at an airport. He ran a restaurant at an airport in, uh, in Newark Airport. And I walked in, and behind him was a stack of checks taped to the wall. And I said, Bill, what's his story about those checks? And I, like I didn't know. Anybody who lived through this era can tell you what that was. That was a wall of shame. He goes, oh, those are all the people that stiffed me. I said, Bill, have you ever thought about accepting credit cards? He goes, no. Get out of here. I go, let me tell you something. You see those people are coming in here? They're not locals. They're people that are traveling back and forth. My data suggests, and I can show you it, that about 60% of them have a credit card or charge card in their pocket. Do you want to accept their check and potentially lose, or do you want to accept their credit card and not lose? And he said, how much is it going to cost me? I go, let me do you a favor. Here's my sales guy stuff. Oh, Brian's a sales guy. I'll tell you, it's very simple. You tell me if this is sales. Add up, Bill, what you lost this month in checks that were not collected. It's very hard to collect on checks out of state, by the way. You know, the theft by deception laws are different in every state. On and on and on. And he ultimately collected some, but most of them didn't. And you put them. Oh yeah, I mean, just people. I guess would you would you simply say that checks cost merchants money when people don't pay because it's just based on a well, piece yeah. of paper that may or may not be fulfilled, and then credit cards just immediately validate the status of the account well, with the bank through the electrical com- communication of a, of a wire, effectively, and that's just yeah. far more reliable. I mean, that exactly, exactly. Uh, but yeah, but, yeah, but yeah. Bill, I mean, but there Bill you go. couldn't quantify it in his mind until a salesperson and helped him. So I just sat down there and I said, okay, let's Yeah, I mean, that. somebody has to explain that to him. But like at so, every company or in every product, you have to learn it from somewhere. Exactly. Prior to the internet, it would just be it, communications. Now it's, you know, people just look online and they read even, for themselves. Or, Mike, Mike yeah. even today, even today, that's why merchant accounts and POS systems, as you know, don't sell themselves and they never will. So, you know, at the end of the day, I, I can tell you exactly how much he lost that month. That month he lost $1,200. All right. There's a lot of money for a small restaurant at an airport. So he was very weary, but he had to accept checks. It was his, it was a requirement for his occupancy in that airport that he could accept checks because a lot of travelers, uh, you know, were mm. using checks, not yeah. even his traveler's checks. So what you- I said, how about if I made your losses more or less disappear? How about you stop accepting che- checks to a certain level? We convinced the airport that credit cards were more valid and, you know, slowly but surely his agreements change over a year. But let me just say you give up 1.25% because that was the rate back then, 1.25% for you to get your money today and never have to worry about ever collecting it. And he said, I don't believe it. I go, puppy dog clothes, here, try it for a month. So he tried it for a month. That was my first sale. He is still one of my clients, even though I don't do this business very much, he's still calling me. He's, he's an entrepreneur. He's, he's had dozens and dozens of businesses since then. You know, and, yeah, and, that's but, great. Yeah. So, so what, what did I do? What I did is I realized that the ability to get money today 
for a sale that you may not have had, there's two things. You're getting money today for a sale you could have had, and you're getting money today for a sale that may not have consummated if you didn't have the ability for that person to have an extension of credit, money they don't have in their pocket or relatively available at that moment. And the average person at that epoch carried about $61 uh, in their pocket. Today, it's about $22. So cash is not being carried around. And back then, almost everybody carried a check back at this point, primarily females carry a check to the tune of about 71%. A lot of folks get scared by that number. Will women carry? Yeah, man, I remember yeah. checks. I mean, I remember people having to balance checks and yeah, now it's just all credit cards and, you know, people just using your phone now to pay for the, yeah. you know, a large part. Yeah, it feels like, a, you know, it feels like a, prog- a consistent progress towards a better customer experience, safer one. You would hope that at some point the percentage charged to merchants goes down and then, you know, subsequently okay, the charge so- that people pay to, to, to make to just make payments at a certain so I'm not going to carry whenever water. there's credit involved yeah I'm not going to carry water for the banks but when this debate comes up there's the European view and there's the American view and 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 that's why it's a very hard debate because Europeans have been conditioned to have money debited from their checking account immediately because they fell for the pin and chip uh, scenario and what I mean fell for it. There's a lot of downsides to it. I don't want to cover it in the show. Maybe some future date. Uh, the American system, I'm not saying it's the best system, is developed in a, in a, under a, sort of a different concept. Uh, I mean, we are a consumer culture. So the thing about it is, and I'm not carrying water for the banks, but when you are taking on all of the risk on both sides of the transaction, you should be adequately paid for that. So I, I give you the, the company view. The company view is, Mr. Merchant, I'm presenting to you a client, a customer that I vouched for and I vetted that, is, that you may not have had access to if you didn't have these logos on your door. And we really forget what this means because the ISO community single-handedly made credit card acceptance ubiquitous. Prior, you know, you don't want to even know how many hugely. Times I, the, and ISO is an independent sales organization, which just generally refers to, you know, in this industry, the people who got together and sold, like what you did, you sold merchants on this yeah. new concept of the electric you know, I, credit card. I slapped personally in my life thousands of logos on Virgin Windows that never had credit card logos on them before. And I can tell you from firsthand representations that the moment those logos went on that window, the sales increase at that store was dramatic, especially in, oh, yeah. in, in city areas. It's also a pretty exciting thing for you to have done and all the other people involved at that time period to bring technology, really the benefits of technology, for, for in, in a real tangible way to the masses, in a real it, it, you know Main Street kind of experience, something that changes what's been around for you know, as long as I can imagine people would remember at that time, just going it fundamentally into a store me. paying with cash. It fundamentally yeah. changed me because I saw merchants that would otherwise not have participated in a growth that larger companies were experiencing. And it was phenomenal. And we can't forget that history. Just because it's ubiquitous now doesn't mean that everything oh, yeah. kind of gets reset. It's- it's great now, especially when you go into stores, you know, up in San Francisco and they have 13 different ways to pay and 58 different uh, stickers on their door. <laughs> so, yeah, so, it's almost like you can go too far. But yeah, so uh, if we go back to our early podcast, we used to talk about some of these alternative ways of payments and stuff like that. And I would always kind of chuckle a bit and say, you know, yeah. And, and all the, almost all those businesses are gone. I mean, yeah. You know, and there's, and mean, it still it, comes back up. People are like, you know, there's square cash, there's this and that. And it's like there's Venmo and all this. And, you know, the reality is the reason why it hasn't fundamentally changed is because it works. It works. Yeah. It still yeah, it works. Today. I mean, especially in the early days, you know, having something that was so much better. It's it's interesting to think about where it goes from here. And, and we could go on for hours on this. So we've we're, we'll draw the line in the sand now and almost make up maybe make a part two on this episode since it's so fascinating. And so many aspects of it are emergent in the in the world today. We didn't even touch on, you know, reward programs and loyalty programs. But those all stem from the same time period but, and, but you I, know, I, largely I, I, affect we how we do out. commerce today. We can't bail without Faisal's sort of insight on, on, on just some of the transitions he's seen in his life 
from his part. Yeah, we'll have to do. We'll have to. Let's do a part two on this show. Uh, Faisal right. dropped out. He had an internet issue, but we'll do a part two on this show and you know go deeper into it because we didn't even touch on you know anything internationally or how how the you know the industry rolls out across the world. And it's so important to think about that because you know the U.S. is really just it's just a, it's just a small subset of the global population. But uh, yeah. Brian really enjoyed this one and look forward to the next one, my man. All right. Thank you very much. Looking forward to the next podcast. All right. See ya. Take care. The views and opinions expressed on any program are those of the hosts, co-hosts, and guests appearing on the show and do not necessarily reflect the view of the owners and producers of the show. Paid advertisements in form of audio announcements may appear throughout the show, including this one. Advertising can also include print and other digital formats. The owners and producers of Around the Coin do not endorse or evaluate the advertised product, service, or company, nor any of the claims made by the advertisement. All programs are subject to a one-time charge for professional editing fees, for which the interviewing guest or guests may have contributed towards. The owners, producers, hosts, co-hosts, and guests on the show are not financial advisors. Any investment advice or opinion cited during the show is for information purposes only. None of the content is intended to be investment advice. Seek a duly licensed professional for investment advice. If you believe there's been any violation of your copyright, trademark, service mark, or any other type of intellectual property, please inform us in writing by sending an email to legal at aroundthecoin.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.